coming to you live from KZSU at Stanford University. This is What Would Your Mother Say? Hi, I'm your host, Susan Morris. Welcome to the show. Here with me in the studio are three Stanford students, Danny, Laura, and Bill. And on the other side of the table are our moms, Mary Morrison and Susan Esterly. Today we have a full show. We'll take a look at the unexpected, what happens when life interrupts our plans, and, of course, our infamous emails from our listeners. This week we have questions about lust versus love and the age-old problem, how to find a significant other. We begin today's show with a look at how we make decisions. A lot of important research is going on that looks into factors that influence us when we're making economic choices. But before talking about that, I'd like to ask you all around the table what process you go through when making decisions. Laura, how rational do you think your process is? And do you think that you review all the factors you should before making a decision? Um, I think that it depends on what the decision is. Uh, I like to characterize my decision-making process as kind of a nice combination for my mother and my stepdad. My mother goes and looks at every single possible piece of input that she could and spends two weeks figuring out what she's going to buy. And then my stepdad, on the other hand, just says, well, does it work? Okay, go ahead and buy it. And so I, I have this kind of emotional thing where I'll, I'll get some information, and then at some point it just gets to be too much, and then I'll just go for it impulsively. Sounds good. Danny? Um, I wait for a very charming person to come around and tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, well. no, no, no. Um, I don't know. Um, I think, like, I tend to intellectualize things, but recently I've been going more with my uh, gut, and that's how I make decisions, and I feel that's the best way. Good. Well, here on the phone to explain some of the hidden forces that drive our decisions is our guest, Dan Ariely, who is one of the world's leading behavioral economists. Uh, Dan is on the faculty of MIT and is currently on leave at Duke University. His research focuses on discovering and measuring how people make decisions and is particularly interested in the irrational decisions that we all make every day. Dan is the author of the bestseller, Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions. Dan, you've collected or conducted a wonderful array of fun experiments that show how predictably irrational we are. Which one do you think best illustrates how predictably irrational we are? Well, there are many uh, irrationalities, but I think one of the most uh, fun ones is the way that emotions change us. And the interesting thing is that emotions not only change us, but they change us in ways that we do not anticipate in advance. We don't fully appreciate. We appreciate a little bit, but not enough. Do you want an example? Yeah, I'd love an example. Okay. So first of all, it's an intuitive example. Think about the following. Have you ever gone to lunch uh, vowing to be on a diet, and then uh, the waiter comes with a dessert tray, and you change your mind? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it, if it ever happened to you, that's basically what happened. It's, as the emotion, the source of the emotion, like the chocolate souffle, gets closer, it changes your decision. But but it turns out these are these are more important than just things in about chocolate souffles. So, for example, we did a study in in a school that is uh, in Northern California, in the San Francisco area. But let's keep it <laughs> the name the name uh, quiet for now. <laughs> and here is what we we try to do. We got a group of undergrads. And we asked them a set of three questions. We asked them questions about sexual preferences. Um, how would you enjoy the following activities? And, and they range from kind of standard sexual activities to kind of kinky or odd ones. Uh, how, how old is the audience that you? 
Well, we have students, but we have a lot of moms. We're old enough. I think right. we should hear some of the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm 12 years old. <laughs> so, you know, we include things like, I, I will not go to the extreme ones, but we included things like being tied up, having sex with animals, stuff like that. So, wow. so Those are the modern ones. <laughs> a whole range, uh, ranging from standard to kind of kinky. And we asked them, when you were aroused, how likely would you be to enjoy that? Okay, so they were, they were unaroused. They were with the laptop, and they were predicting how they will enjoy this later on. And then we asked them questions about, um, basically questions about date rape, kind of question about to what extent will they go to achieve sexual gratification. Would you tell a woman that you love her even if you don't to try and convince her to go to bed with you? Would you get her drunk? Would you get her drugged? Would you try to force her to have sex with you even if she doesn't want to? And finally, we asked them questions about condoms. You're in a room alone, you're both half naked, all of a sudden you realize that you don't have a condom, will you go to the drugstore and get one or will you try and have sex unprotected? So we had three sets of questions. What will you enjoy? To what extent will you become immoral to achieve sexual gratification? And what about condom use? And in all cases, we asked them to tell us what they will do in the future if they're aroused. Now. Unsurprisingly, uh, the students did not find most of the odd behavior that we proposed to them attractive. They were quite conservative in their sexual preferences, and they said they'll always behave nicely to women and always have sex with a condom. Then we took the same kids, young adults I should say, uh, plus uh, some new ones, and we asked them the same questions. How would you behave in those domains when you're sexually aroused? But this time we gave them the benefit of actually being sexually aroused. <laughs> so if you were in the experiment, you would get the laptop in the same way that you got in the other condition. You would go to your room to, to, to answer it in the privacy of your own comfort. But this time there was also some pornography on the computer. And before they started the experiment, the first thing that came was, was all these pictures of pornography. And we asked the students to self-stimulate. <laughs> and, and as they, uh, they started uh, masturbating at a certain level of erection, the question started popping up. So they, they answered the same question, but now they had the benefit of actually being aroused. They didn't have to guess how they will be when they're aroused. They actually felt aroused. And now the answers were vastly different. I mean, the effect size was just tremendous. It was as if people just really don't know themselves. All of a sudden, a whole range of sexual activities, ranging from legal to illegal, became more attractive. The, the respect they felt toward women was much more reduced. The, 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 and, and the interest they had in condoms basically was eliminated. <laughs> wow. And, and the issue is how much do people really know themselves? Because you can think about this. Um, many parents in the U.S. have this idea of just say no. Tell your kids just not to have sex up to a certain age. Now, if a kid says no when they're unaroused, and as a consequence they don't take a condom, there's a good chance that they'll get aroused, they'll say yes, and they'll not have a condom. So we are actually very worried about this inability to understand how we behave when, when we are uh, emotionally excited, when we feel differently, when our personality, in some sense, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we change so dramatically. Do you think that this applies to other emotions, not, not to sexual arousal, like anger yes. or other things that you would start reacting rationally? You know? that's, that's right. I mean, you're in California. You, you know all about road rage. <laughs> yes. you know, think, think about emotion in the following sense. 
So imagine that you're in the jungle, and it's half a million years ago, and you see a tiger. What do you want? Do you want a system that will think cognitively and deliberatively about the costs and benefits of running? Of course not. You want something that is automatically activated and makes you execute a command, makes you behave in a certain way without thinking, and in fact overrides thinking. And that's what emotions do. If you think about it, they're not invoked by us internally. They're evoked by the environment. The environment is controlling us. And once they're evoked, we can't control it. It's, the emotions are transient. But the moment they're evoked, they almost call us to execute a command, and our thinking ability is largely diminished. And that happens with all emotion. It's not just that. It's hunger. For example, it turns out that people who are thirsty think very differently about charities that have to do with um, clean water in Africa. Because the moment you feel thirsty, you can feel for the poor people who don't have clean water. When you don't feel the feeling of thirst, you don't have any sympathy with those. And so on and so forth. That's amazing. Laura? So, uh, Dan, this is one of the students, uh, Laura. And um, so from my, what, my understanding is that this study was done mostly on men at this uh, <laughs> unnamed university in California. <laughs> and as a woman at a, a, a university in California, um, I, I, I'm not going to deny the fact that I'm sure that women have uh, equally impaired judgment under sexual arousal. But uh-huh. what, what can someone do in order to... Uh, Yes, protect themselves from poor decision making or irrational uh, moral judgment calls uh, when in, say, a situation that might cause for sexual arousal. Yeah. So first of all, let me say something about women. So we, we tried to do this experiment on women as well. We started with men because it's so much easier to arouse men. <laughs> uh, basically, you know, it's, it's, and, and women have a much uh, a more varied taste in what they find aroused. Some women like images, some don't, so it was much harder experimentally. But when we eventually got to do it with women and we found the right material, we had a problem. This was at MIT. We were trying to run this at MIT, and the vast majority of women uh, either could not or refused to admit that they could get sexually aroused by masturbation. So You said they refused to admit it? Is that what you're saying? I don't know if they couldn't or just would not admit it. Well, could this just be a problem with the sample? Because maybe you have these MIT students who are just overworking too hard. <laughs> right, right. That, you know, you don't get to MIT for nothing. Right? <laughs> well, that's kind of my point. So, so, so we, don't, we don't know. But the problem is we had only 20% of the women that were willing to indicate that they were, could, could get aroused. And, um, and because of that, we couldn't get a good, a good sample. We tried to convince the Human Subject Committee that, that approves all the experiments if we could actually buy these women uh, vibrators, <laughs> but, but they, they refused. They refused? Wait, wait so, so you spent this time finding out the secrets to arousing women. Um, could you uh, share some of those <laughs> insights? <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let me get back to, to the question. What, what can you do, what can you do um, about it? By the way, my trick to arousing women is just to leave. <laughs> um, but but what, what can we do about these problems? Uh, it turns out that some irrationalities, and there are many, many ways in which we are irrational. Emotion is just one of them. Uh, I, I describe all my research. Every, every paper I write is about a different type of irrationality. But in the case of emotion, what we have to understand is that once the emotion is ignited, it's kind of too late. And we have to recognize it. 
and in a very cold way, saying, look, I know that if I go to a restaurant hungry and the waiter will come with this, I'll do this. I know that if I go to the Christmas party, I will behave badly. I know all of these things. And the question is not to put ourselves in this temptation, because once we do it, we're kind of doomed. Another approach is to think about how do we use technology to overcome those. So, for example, in my book, I proposed an approach that now there's some company who are trying to do it, which says, if you're excited, and when you're excited, you don't think about small probabilities. Basically, you think the chance of getting AIDS shrinks from unprotected sex the moment you're aroused. It's not, you know, one in 200, it's one in 2,000. How do you make something not probability, not, not probabilistic and not in the future? Imagine that you drove a car, and as you got excited and started turning a little too fast and driving a little too fast and not stopping and so on, the car will give you not a probabilistic punishment in the shape of accidents, but a certain punishment in the moment. The car, for example, would use OnStar and call your mother at that moment <laughs> <laughs> over oh, no. driving. Deliver a turn... small electric shock. <laughs> <laughs> it so... will turn classical music on. It will basically create something that will not rely on your discounting of future events. It will create a punishment that is immediate. So that's another um, kind of approach that we can, we can use for those things. Bill? So um, it sounds like you're saying that once we are already in the moment, there's pretty much no hope for us uh, if we're already becoming aroused or something. Now, um, I'm wondering, so it, it, does this all fall, fall in the women's hands then to say, hey, hold on, stop. You better go grab a condom or else I'm going to punish you by not having sex. Because it, it sounds like what you're saying right now is us, us men are hopeless. <laughs> well, I, I, I do think women also get aroused. This is not, this is not just uh, men versus, versus women. But, again, I, I want to make it clear that not all the irrational behaviors are, are, about, are about emotion. You know, you, you're talking later in the program about dating. We find a lot of other types of irrationalities in dating that have nothing to do with emotion. Oh, such as? Such as, okay. Um, so it turns out that we find, I'll give you two examples. One of them is that we find that people over-diversify, or what we call juggle, in online dating. So what people try to do is they try to keep too many relationships open. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the process of trying to date a little bit person A and a little bit person B and a little bit person C, just to see which one of them will turn out the best, they spread the resources too thinly, they don't, and they don't get a good relationship with either of them. It's almost like an undergrad who's trying to um, get a major in too many topics. Mm. If, you, if you try to spread yourself too thin, you'll not get to be an expert in anything. So that's oh. one mistake we find in online dating. There's some oh, finger pointing going on in the room that you can't see. <laughs> <laughs> pointing to ourselves. Right. Yeah, yeah right. that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. well. another, another thing we find is uh, we call it more is less. It turns out that when, particularly in online dating, when people describe themselves with fewer, sketchier details, <laughs> other people like them more. Right. <laughs> and, and the reason is that if I told you I like music, you would all think I like the kind of music that you like and you would like me more. But the moment you will discover more and more about me, the more you would realize <laughs> I'm not like you, and, actually, the, and the less you would like me. Actually, I, I do that. You, you know, you're familiar with Facebook. Um, I do that with my Facebook page. It's, it's like self-marketing. You know, lots of people put long in, list of interest. I kind of uh, put fewer things. I don't know. It's kind of... Kind of silly, but it's... Me too, but I don't get any, you know, invites for dates via Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> time, to, time to change what you put down as your interest. <laughs> well, what tips do you have generally, uh, Dan, for, for, uh, to help us make better, smarter decisions? 
So, so again, the problem is that there's one way to be rational and many ways to be irrational. And what, what I hope people will do, and I know it's kind of uh, self-serving for my profession, but I hope that people would look at the demonstration of the kind of irrationalities we find out. So we talked about uh, juggling, we talk about emotion, there's results about how we attracted to things that are free, uh, overly attracted to them, there's a question of uh, cheating, there's all kinds of things in the market, sensitivity to irrelevant alternatives, Oh, I do have a great tip for dating for you. I'll tell you in a second. <laughs> um, but it, it turns out that what we need to do is we need to recognize these individual examples, and we need to try and recognize them in our own lives. So what happened to me is people who read my paper or the book, they, they write me and say, you know, I've recognized myself in this chapter. I do this particular behavior, and here is how I get to overcome it. I don't think we can be perfectly rational. I don't think we want to. I think we should recognize the big things that cause us to get into messes and just cancel those. And, of course, you know, the stock market is a, is a, is a good example now, is to think about how do we understand the conflict of interest, the problems with incentives, and how do we fix those things in the, in the things that really matter to us. And forget about the little things. Well, that sounds great. Well, I want to thank you so much. Wait, oh, wait. I oh. want to give you the dating advice. Oh, oh absolutely. Oh, Susan, actually, don't cut in. Actually, could I interject a very quick question? I was wondering... You know, my, my friend has often said, I, I wouldn't like a girl who hasn't doesn't like Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I said, that's really silly. I mean, it just matters on how much you like being with the girl you'll get feeling. You're over-intellectualizing it. Um, I agree with him, by the way, but... Go, uh-huh. just but <laughs> how much, how much um, like, should you just go with your gut versus uh, being worried about making rational decisions? So, so with dating? Uh, yes. So, so the problem with dating is that people have a, a not necessarily very good long-term impression from your first gut feeling. But, so here's what happened. You go on a date. After two minutes, you decide if you like that person or not. Now, it could be that you're a very bad judge of character, but you will never let yourself try because if you have a terrible first date, you will never have a second date with that person. So I think in most cases, our gut intuitions are actually wrong. There's this wonderful book, Blink, which most people read the first half, which talks about the cases in which our intuitions are correct. But it turns out these are the f- few exceptions, and in most cases our intuitions are wrong. And I'll say something that is good for the show. When you're infatuated with somebody and you think about marrying them, it's exactly the situation of being I- involved in your high emotion. You can't possibly think of ever falling out of love with that person. You can't possibly think about any real-term considerations. But life is life, and if you marry them and a few years later, you'll have to deal with a lot of things. So the best advice is before you get married to somebody, ask your mother. (laughs) Seriously, because they have the outside perspective. They can see the information. They want your benefit, but they're not infatuated. They don't have the emotion that is clouding your judgment at the moment. So let me just give you the (laughs) dating advice. This is very important. You listening? We are all listening. Okay. (laughs) There's something we call the asymmetric dominance effect, which basically says that if you add an option that nobody wants, it can actually change preferences. Hmm. So imagine that, um, I'm sorry, the, the, the woman student, what was your name? Laura. Laura. Imagine you're choosing between Dan and? Bill. Dan and Bill. I'm looking at both of them right now. Okay, and let's assume for the sake of argument that Dan and Bill are kind of similar in their overall attractiveness. They're different, yeah, yeah. but overall similar. Mm-hmm. What would happen if you had another person in the mix that was uglier than both of them? <laughs> <laughs> now, it shouldn't influence you in any way, but it turns out there's a special case. If there was somebody 
who was similar to Dan, but slightly less attractive. The comparison between this ugly Dan and Dan would make Dan more attractive than ugly Dan. Because you have a hard time comparing Dan to Bill. But if it was ugly Dan, which is the same as Dan, just with bigger ears, let's say. <laughs> regular Dan would look better than ugly Dan, but it would also start looking better than Bill. So I need to walk around with an ugly Bill all the time. Right. Now, I know some people who make friends solely based on that. Really? So, so there are two pieces of advice here. The first is if you ever go bar hopping, the person you want to take with you is somebody similar but slightly less attractive. <laughs> That's news one. And the second part of the coin is that if somebody else invites you to come with them, you know how they think about you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, won't, I won't bring you bar hopping. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, as we, the kids are going to use, the, uh, students are going to use this advice on, over Thanksgiving vacation. <laughs> Dan, <For life. laughs> yes, Dan, thanks so much for coming My on pleasure. this show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Dan Ariely, his book, Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions, is available at your local bookstore or online. If you're interested in participating in any of Dan's studies, go to predictablyirrational.com. Again, that email address is predictablyirrational.com. Excuse me, the website address is predictablyirrational.com. Let's take a quick break and then a look at some... uh, impulses and maybe not so smart decisions that we've made stay tuned we'll be right back i'm susan morris you're listening to what would your mother say Coming to you live from Studio A at KZSU at Stanford University, this is What Would Your Mother Say? Hi, I'm Susan Morris. Here at the table with me are three Stanford students, Bill, Laura, and Danny, along with Mom, Susan Esterly, and Mary Morrison. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about making decisions and how irrational we often are when we're doing that. Our guest was Professor Dan Ariely, one of the world's leading behavioral economists. So, panel members, what did you think about what he said? Laura? Well, I need to find a friend who looks like me, (laughs) but less attractive. (laughs) Well, explain to our listeners that he was saying that, uh, Dan was saying that you want to go to a bar, bar hopping with someone who's not as attractive as you, so it'll make you look better. Yeah, and I have a better chance of, uh, you know, getting mine. (laughs) So our decision-making is influenced then when we can compare right there. Mm -hmm. Something looks better than, or something might look better priced if it's next to something that's very, very expensive, a in in his book, um, uh, predictably irrational. Dan uses an example of a be- bread making machine from William Sonoma. It's like three hundred dollars. They couldn't sell any of them, and then they put out one that was one hundred twenty five, and people started to buy that off the shelf wow. because it looked so reasonably priced compared to the other one. Hmm. Do you think that what he said sounded plausible? Oh, yeah. It sounded real plausible. I've definitely noticed myself making uh, much worse decisions, or I don't know worse, but more gut decisions when uh, I'm really in the heat of the moment or something. And also, uh, he didn't talk about this, but when we get really tired, I think we make terrible decisions as well. Yeah. What do you guys think about that? Especially as we're in midterms right now. It's best not to go be tired and at a party and get sexually aroused. (laughs) Don't know who you'll end up with. I find when I'm hungry that I get very irritable. It's just I don't care how mean I am. I've got to have the food. I've got to feed the machine. Exactly. Yes. Did anything that he, any of the experiments that he talked about in the book or that we talked about on the show surprise you? Well, recently I've been going with the idea that I should go more with my gut kind of. 
but he made me think that, okay, maybe I should uh, rely more heavily on the head than the heart in some situations. Maybe I'll read his book and find out exactly <laughs> w- which ones to do. One of the problems, though, when you do too much thinking about it is sometimes then you don't do anything. I'm, right, exactly. Can you You're imagine crippled. that yes. being... I, I had a oh, that boss like that time. once. It's terrible to work for a person like that. She couldn't She couldn't ma- decide what type the report should be printed in, what, wow. you know... What font. What font, yes. I mean, you know... Everything was, we had a, we were designing a survey and she couldn't decide if she should have one box for male, one box for female only, or have male and female and other. You oh know. my God. She spent days, she'd come back in the morning and change her mind about it and then go back to the, I mean, she, she, well, finally, I think they had to take her away. I mean, I think. <laughs> Where they take her to? I mean, I Sanitarium. Think she, she disappeared one day and never came back, but uh, she, she couldn't make a decision. She just couldn't do it. You know, I, I suffer sometimes from being, quote, a perfectionist, and I do like to, to make the right decision. And I mm-hmm. always end up doing something, but it's with a lot of anxiety sometimes. Right. And there's needless energy spent right, on exactly. it. A small decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my husband has a much more philosophical way of approaching these things. He said, get it done. Do right. something. Yeah. And don't worry about it. Even and, if it's bad, it's better than nothing. Yeah, exactly. Or it's it's better than this energy being spent toward, you know, am I am I smart enough to make the right decision? Right. Am I doing my due diligence, Bill? Yeah. One of the experiments that I saw in his book that I thought was actually kind of shocking was where he talked about how we overvalue the estimate of or the value of things that are free and where he talks about how um, I don't remember the specific example but but how we'll think something's free and oh it was with kids and chocolate and the kids will take one chocolate bar the smaller if it's free as opposed to giving up a, a tiny chocolate bar for a giant chocolate bar so I, I thought that was really shocking because I, I didn't think that we did um, misconstrue how, how what free meant what well, do you guys think? Right. Well, I agree with that. There's one. Have you ever been to the market uh, and you say you buy two bottles of ketchup and you get the third one for free? Right. Which would explain why my cabinet is filled with ketchup <laughs> bottles. <laughs> yes. Ho- hopefully, Obama won't make the similar decisions about his cabinet. that sounds right well we have um we sent out our roving reporter andrew valencia to find out about uh, students making rational decisions about wearing a helmet and here we go hello this is andrew valencia your roving reporter it is generally accepted that bicycling on campus is treacherous and can be pretty pretty scary sometimes especially without a bike helmet Stanford senior Kevin Webb is a columnist for The Daily. He has some theories on why students don't take the most basic precautions of just using a bike helmet, and he has a plan for how to change this uh, problem here on campus. Let's listen in. Bike accidents happen approximately 30 times more often than sex on campus. Yet, most of us refuse to wear helmets to protect the brains that got us here. Why? Because somehow, taking this protective measure is seen as uncool. Though dorky-looking, bicycle helmets are the best way, aside from not biking, to prevent seriously debilitating injury in the event of an accident. I've had friends get hit by cars and fences that were alarmingly poor at staying up. And I myself once hit a bump and landed in the middle of White Plaza, covered in blood, oil, and my own humiliation. But here's the problem. Bike helmets look people look more nerdy on an already very nerdy campus. And when it comes to impressing the opposite sex, that's probably the last thing most of us need. My solution? Make wearing helmets sexy. First, find all of the attractive girls on campus. Next, pay them to wear helmets. Finally, have them only date guys who also wear helmets. Problem solved. And awesomely, I might add. This is Kevin Webb. 
pundit Kevin Webb says he is now recruiting girls who will help out with his plan. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, thank you very much for going out and getting that for us. So what did you all think about this? I mean, having been um, in a bike accident recently myself and hurting my, thank God, not my head, but my arm. I was not wearing a helmet, by the way. Oh. Yeah. Do you wear helmets? I don't wear a helmet. Actually, uh, I do know Kevin, though. He's, he's, a, he's a friend of mine, and i got to say his wow. idea is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Should they wear bikinis while they're biking? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Or the helmets. Right, right. Well, seriously, though, why don't kids wear helmets? Well, it's not socially acceptable. Well, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, keep going. Oh, no. For, for me, I, you know, I'm 22 years old and invincible. So, I mean, I, you, you guys probably aren't, but at least I am. Uh, I'm 22 <laughs> as well. But oh, okay. You might be invincible. <laughs> but for me, it's yeah. more of a convenience issue. Right. It's like I, I have enough to carry already with books and laptops and other various technological things that assist me during my day. And having a big bike helmet to carry around just seems, I don't know. It's just one more thing I have to worry about. So when I came in with my splinter on my arm from my bike accident, that still... I wouldn't buy elbow pads, actually. (laughs) But it didn't... That still didn't maybe make you think. Maybe rethink Mm -hmm. that you're not going to wear a helmet? Well, see, here's what it comes down to. Injuries are cool. Protective measures aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, Bill? Well, I think we also um, overestimate how safe we are and how good our own skills at diving off of a bike and and rolling out of trouble are. You know, I I think Mm -hmm. we... We really overestimate that. So we think that we are invincible, like you're talking about. I, I feel invincible most right. of the time. Well, I <laughs> want to talk about some romantic trysts that you've had that didn't make sense. It had nothing to do with bike helmets. I no, we've that. moved completely oh, okay, from, right. from the reasonable to the okay. to the sublime. I was always romantic tryst with bike helmets. <laughs> no. my, my late husband was quite a biker. <laughs> Never mind. Go ahead. But, um, <laughs> Say that for later. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, yes. Well, I wanted you to talk about, um, just briefly, about some romantic uh, situations that you've gotten into knowing and some part of your brain that they didn't make sense. What do you mean didn't make sense? Well, he's too good looking or she's got... <laughs> is, that, is that a poor decision? <laughs> well, you know... you are just lucky. At <laughs> <laughs> well, you... You know what I mean, though. Right. You, right, right in the time when you're involved in this, you're also thinking simultaneously, this is not a good idea. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, of course, what Dan was saying earlier was that you don't even think that maybe this isn't a good idea once you're into it. You're like, maybe... Yeah, well, you're, I didn't say you right. stopped. I just said you were thinking it at the same time. <laughs> well, what happens to you guys when you're in situations? Do you you move forward? Well, for, for me, this is Laura, um, I, I have this kind of... There's a certain threshold of which, you know, in a situation I'm willing to go. And then um, it, I think it actually what it boils down to is kind of the foot in the door technique where it's like, well, you already buy into part of it. And then so what's to stop it from going just a little bit further? And and then I guess you're already in that state of somewhat arousal. And that that's when poor decision making, because it's, it's not just the poor decision making that, uh, that Dan was talking about, but uh, also this other psychological thing of like, well, you've already b- bought into part of it. You've already committed a little bit. Might as well. What? You might as well burn down the whole building? <laughs> You've already climbed over the barbed wire fence. Exactly. Right. Okay. All right. Well, Danny? Well, for me, I don't know. I, I feel uh, a lot of irrational things stop my progress. Like, uh, I can come, like, I'm a pretty shy guy, and I can come up with any number of reasons to stop. It's like, oh, our, 
I'm too busy right now, or, oh, we wouldn't get along anyway. It's like, you know, just try it. It's like, it's totally irrational. I'm actually somewhat like that. I'm not as uh, irrational when, when I get into it, or I guess I'm still irrational, but I tend to get into relationships pretty quickly. But but then I, I find myself thinking, overthinking things, mm-hmm. so that I end up just, like, destroying the relationship and falling apart, being like, oh, so there's, there's no way she's right for me, you know, just overthinking all, all the little tiny problems and all that. Right. Sounds, yes. Mary, what were you like? Well... What was I like? <laughs> you were young. What was I like when I was young? I mean, back in the day. Yes. Uh, no, I was actually sitting here thinking of uh, some years ago when a married man was coming on to me big time, frequently. Yeah. And it was sort of fun, you know, because, you know, I didn't get all that much attention. and But while it was going on, I was also thinking, this is not a good idea. Well, but, if his you know, wife was your friend, it was yeah, a particularly bad idea. Yeah, it was a particularly bad, bad idea. Oh. Well, I didn't necessarily stop the activity instantaneously having thought that. Am I making any sense? Yeah, you're no, totally. But so, so, so diving back into what we were talking about earlier, what, what about that kind of made you, what do you think it was about you that allowed you to continue that? Even though you knew it was a bad right. idea. Right. Well, that's why I was sitting here trying to think, and I was hoping you'd come up with the answer. <laughs> but well, you were impassioned. You were yeah, aroused. Right. And it was, you know, it was a pleasant. Flattering. Flattering. There, there's all sorts of reasons. It was emotions, right? Yeah, it was emotions. Talk- Absolutely, it was emotions. That's right. Well, were you ever in a situation where all those things were true, and then you said, uh-uh, I'm not going there. I'm not going to get near there. Actually, this Halloween, I was in a situation kind of similar to that. Um, so I, I was dressed up, and I had a full beard on. I was dressed up as God, so people really couldn't <laughs> tell my identity. And we ended up going to um, a party over at the design loft. Now, who is we? Uh, it, it was me and a couple friends. Okay. Yeah, there are about four or five of us. And um, th- they all left me to go talk to their professors because they're all in the design department. So I was left on the dance floor just out there dancing, and it turned out that some, some teachers from the design department came up and started hitting on me. And I, I was, like, really shocked and everything, and they kept hitting on me. And I was completely anonymous behind this uh, amazing beard I had. <laughs> so so I, I jokingly flirted with them for, like, a minute or two, and then, then it hit me. This is really, really strange and i was already drunk and everything and i was i was pretty caught up in everything so this was not an entirely rational decision i was caught up in emotions but i managed to get out of that (laughs) also it's the discomfort too though that yeah that's an emotion that affects me. Well, there you go. I think there's like a certain <laughs> threshold of it just feeling uncomfortable and wrong. That if it passes that threshold, you just you act. But if it doesn't reach that threshold, then it, you can yeah, kind well, of like let it continue. Yeah, that was a situation I was having with my my friend's husband. It wasn't you know. sufficiently uncomfortable. Exactly. So and every time I think, well, let's wrong. make it a little more uncomfortable and see if I stop. No. no, no, no. <laughs> so we're slaves to our emotions. <laughs> yeah. So but that, that makes me actually, think of like uh, the Twinkie defense. Remember that mm-hmm. when uh, the murder of uh, Harvey Milk yeah. and, and Dan White killed them. Yeah. And, you know, everyone was outraged because he blamed that the sugar rush. And, but, you know, I feel sometimes like, like the research that Dan Ariely did, in a way, it kind of dovetails along with that line of thinking that, you know, once we're in the heat of passion, we're not as responsible somehow. Well, there are some religious groups that would say that this is a bunch of bull, that you make decisions and you say, I'm not going to do certain things because they're wrong and you don't do them. Well, I, and I think that's true. I mean, even if you, let's say you have road rage, and I I think if any of us are really honest, we'd all say we all felt road rage at some point. But that doesn't mean we actually do drive our car into, you know, innocent bystanders on the sidewalk. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? I mean, yeah. there's a point at which we must have some kind of control to yeah. stop ourselves, even if we get really mad and honk and swear or something. Yeah. There's something that stops us from t- going that next step. Right. I, I, going to The thought of going to jail. Yeah, or something. <laughs> those, those kinds of things. Well, well in, um, in conclusion, what, what, what can we say about, uh, about our emotions and making decisions? 
it's sometimes we are rational and sometimes we're not. How's mm-hmm. that for a? It's just right. an issue of telling when. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I think I think what I, I'm going to take from this is listen to your emotions, but go with your brain. Like mm-hmm. be in touch with your emotions, but make the logical choice. And I think what I'm going to take is just plan ahead to know that you won't be irrational. That you won't be rational. So that's try it. not to get yourself into really bad situations. Yeah, that's what he would. That's what the yeah. writer would have wanted us to yeah. do. Yeah. Okay. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about dealing with the unexpected when life interrupts our plans. First, a short break. I'm Susan Morris, and you're listening to this. What would your mother say? Coming to you live from KZSU at Stanford University, this is What Would Your Mother Say? I'm Susan Morris. Welcome to the show. Sitting with me in Studio A are three Stanford students, Bill, Laura, and Danny, along with two moms, Susan Esterly and Mary Morrison. We have loads of emails from our listeners this week, and panel, I'm sure you'll enjoy some of their questions. But first, let's take a look at dealing with life's twists and turns. You know, no matter how, this is such a cliche, but no matter how much we plan things at one time or another, it's likely that we'll all get hit with the unexpected, the cards that life deals deals us. Um, I want to know if there's anyone at at the panel who would like to tell us a story or a situation where you were taken by a big surprise by something. And this could be a happy thing or not so happy. Anyone have a story to tell us? Yes, Bill. Well, uh, when I was eight years old, I was living uh, back in Colorado, and um, I had a, a kind of crazy year. I, I was diagnosed with uh, cystic fibrosis, which is like a, a pretty bad lung disease, and then right after that, my family decided to move to California. So I, I was like, I was, I was suddenly sick, and I was losing all of my friends and everything. So I, I threw a, a really pretty fierce tantrum for, for about a week or two, but eventually got over it. And um, my family ended up moving around a lot, so I, I've had a lot of these traumatic, life-changing incidents where I've actually had to break off like really solid relationships with like um girlfriends and stuff just because we're moving you know so gosh what were some of the those are two heavy duty things to have to deal with right. how, i made it did, sound worse than it was well, <laughs> no, that's pretty intense that's pretty intense i mean do you do you have any obviously you you've survived i find you very outgoing and mm-hmm. and uh, it's actually made me very outgoing because when you go around and you're constantly the new kid at school you find you quickly have to get friends to survive i mean you can't survive without any friends you just get too lonely well how have you dealt with your illness though uh the, the illness um I, I take it in stride, honestly. For, from day one, my, my doctor uh, kind of told me that I had to be in charge of all my medicine, so it's not my parents' responsibility. It's my own responsibility. And then um, I've also gotten really involved in the CF Foundation to help uh, raise money and uh, help find the cure. And currently, I'm actually doing research on cystic fibrosis in the labs right now, and we're getting some pretty cutting-edge stuff. We're actually getting pretty close to uh, maybe not a cure, but a really solid treatment. Oh, wow. That's I think exciting. You're, yeah, you're following all the, the suggestions that they have when something is just overwhelming, that you've sort of taken control of what you're doing about it yeah. and gotten engaged in it. I think health is one of the big, big surprises things that comes along in people's lives. You know, you suddenly hear that your best friend is extremely ill, your parents or your child or something. And it just really almost seems to come as the bolt out of the blue almost always. One of my favorite cartoons I ever saw was the guy who was jogging. And they had the pictures of him jogging for his health. And look, jogging past all these really fat people and people, lazy people. And, but you, he couldn't see in the last frame there was this big manhole he was about oh. to. You know. <laughs> I, I can't describe the drawing very well, but you knew he was headed for this. 
<laughs> he was he had this really look great self satisfaction on his face as he was passing all these you know, oh, on the side. That's how Jim Fix died. Well, he didn't die in a manhole, but he he was like this amazing runner who wrote books and books about oh, yeah. how to yeah. run. And yeah. then he died running of a heart attack Dead, at a yeah. fairly young right. age. Yeah, that's right. Mary, you now you work in the financial aid at Stanford. Have yes. you had any students who have come in? I bet you do this coming semester, saying my parents have gone not belly up, but have lost a lot of money and and suddenly going yes. to Stanford. Right. Is we not- have we have lots of students who say that. We have students who walk in to say, "I went home for Christmas. My father died on Christmas Eve." You know, just suddenly. Or wow. they will come back and say, "My parents are getting a divorce. I didn't even know they weren't getting along." Uh, you know, very. You know, not really, not that bad. And. The students are often coming with, with these bolts out of the blue that come along, yes, in all sorts of ways. Or my brother just joined, was arrested, you know, my little brother, and I want to know if I should go home or not. Oh, my like brother's that. now my sister. Well, they don't, I've never had anybody <laughs> that say can that. Happen. But, that, 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 that. But it's possible. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to second that. At, when I was a resident assistant last year, I definitely got a lot of things just like out of the blue. Someone just say, hey, Laura, can, can I come talk to you? And then all of a sudden, you, you know, you just think they want a pep talk for their next exam and just like, bam, life yeah, just wow. hits them in the face. And you're just like, yeah. well, I, I won't want to do my best to help support you but wow what do you tell these people when they come in there with stuff like my my dad just died on christmas eve how do you even try to console them well my my whole function is to try to to talk about their finances and try to calm them down about continue being able to continue in school even if dad was the one who was paying the bill and so so i try to say well what should we do next the next thing we can do about this particular part of your issue is we can fill out this form we can talk about this you can get this you just give them another step a very boring and logical thing that gets them away from their emotion. And all right, if I fill this out, this form out, or do this, it'll be a little bit better. Things will get a little calmer. When Danny, you and I were mm. talking last week about you were talking about all the stress with your schoolwork, and mm. and you have a technique. I mean, you called it mindfulness. Right, mindfulness and meditation. I, I've started uh, getting more into Buddhist philosophy, and not in kind of like this. You know, that sounds. Sounds kind of like you know dabbling, but no, it's. I feel it's a good way to live, a good way compatible with many uh, worldviews. But what I've been doing is, you know, anxiety kind of makes it more difficult for me to do my homework. So what I do is I meditate for a while, and it basically clears all the thoughts from your head, relaxes all your muscles, and you can just let go of that sort of thing. And also, like when I'm walking to class, rather than thinking about what I'm going to do next, which just exhausts me and keeps me from being able to do what I'm going to do next, I pay attention to the trees and, and the day and just like pretend like it's a walk in the park and just absorb it. And then when I, I go into class or do something, I, I'm refreshed and ready to do it more. So Danny, this is Laura. I um, just mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, so I've, I've often been told by like my mother and other people like, Oh, Laura, you know, you're so, you're, you know, burning the candle at both ends. You're working so hard. You should mm-hmm. do yoga or something. Right. And for me, it's hard justifying to myself while I'm so completely into this, uh, this track of, mm-hmm. of things that I'm doing to justify stepping out and sectioning off some time to do something like yoga or meditation. So right. how do you get over that, that threshold of saying, well, no, I can justify this to myself. Well, for me, I, I started worrying so much about school that I, I didn't, it, like, it really got in the way of doing my schoolwork. So, uh, like, for me, it really helped my schoolwork. And also I feel, um, like, you know, just taking more free time, spending time doing nothing, to doing an enjoyable thing actually helps your work. Like, it, like, it's like some people work all the time but don't get anything done and, and lose sleep and stuff like that. And, um you know, that's an irrational way to go about it. 
So, um, it yeah, seems like for what... myself, I found, found that I really needed to take free time and relaxation time for myself to get be at my top level of performance. Well, it would seem that these same techniques would work when life hits us with something. Definitely. Yeah, Definitely. You, it's good coping strategies. Yeah, just pulling back and saying, or you, or you can... Mary, you've probably seen students. I've seen my contemporaries who just give into it. They they just can't cope. And, right. and uh, what I see lots of times is people make this bad situation even worse by starting to make up things. Now that my dad's died, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this everything's None of which necessarily, will, they just start bringing up, they, right. they can't stop at the one thing they have to deal with. And they start expanding their anxiety out to the other mm-hmm. parts of their life. You know, it, you try it's to catastrophizing. It's catastrophizing. Right. They so really, that's effect. really right. common. And the thing that becomes the problem isn't the actual. Yes. Like, like the things that happen to us in life, that's something I've learned recently. The things that happen to us in life mean nothing. It's just the anxiety that we attach yeah. to them. If, if we can just drift through life not concerned about anything, <laughs> we're not concerned about anything. It's like. Wow, I just got my leg amputated. <laughs> oh, well. You know, it's a, exactly. Dan, I could learn a lot from you. This is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> oh, like, uh, read, read some of the things on, on Buddhism. Once again, I, I kind of cringe on my... Well, I, uh, I cringe a little with my, the word Buddhism. But, but, but no, but, it's true. Uh, Buddha was a philosopher. You yeah. know, he wasn't, he wasn't a... Uh, oh, didn't have any pretenses towards religion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it sounds very helpful. Well, we are going to take a, a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at our emails that we've gotten over the week and by the way our telephone number is 650-723-9010 if we'd love to have your comments um we are going to be talking about our emails, but if you have any comments about what we've been talking about on the on, um, earlier on the show, we'd love to hear what you have to say. I'm Susan Morris. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Studio A at KZSU at Stanford. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? I'm your host, Susan Morris. Here with me are two moms, Susan Esterly and Mary Morrison, and three Stanford students, Danny, Bill, and Laura. If you're just tuning in, this is when the panel turns into Ann Landers, and we <laughs> offer our advice or our comments to our listeners who have sent us emails during the week. Our topic, as always, is relationships, and we have a, an email here from Matt. He says, I'm a guy who likes to have pedicures and manicures. Is this a turnoff for women? Well, we'll start with the girls on the panel first. Mm. Laura, if some guy had well-manicured fingernails. Well, so I've actually had this rule um, since, let's see, I think I was about 12 or 13, (laughs) which was I'm never going to date a man who has fingernails longer than mine. (laughs) Um, I'm a guitarist. I'm a guitarist. I need this to play guitar, man. Yeah, you keep telling yourself that. We're not going on a date. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) I'm learning this song. I'll I'll play it for you. You know, you, you, you change maybe, your mind. Maybe I like singers better? I don't know. <laughs> no, I sing. I sing, okay. too. Oh, wow. I, I sing better than I play guitar. But your fingernails. No. Um, and I, so... It's a turnoff. Long no, fingernails. But long I think fingernails. Irrational. I think guys who take care of themselves is attractive. I think with... Uh, you have this whole idea of a metrosexual at this point. And I think I... Well, so I've dated a lot of men who other people from the outside looking thin outside looking in have thought we're gay and so um i guess i have no problem with kind of did you send us an email a couple weeks ago we had this (laughs) so i for me as long as they're well kept then that's fine Okay. Why would I be bothered if a man got his toenails cut? I'm not following you. No, I didn't say that. The guys asked. Well, why can't he cut his own toenails? 
Well, I mean, it, don't do some. We're talking about a manicure and a pedicure, not a yeah. guy who just cuts his nails. Right, right. Are I mean, I cut my nails. I'm not metrosexual. <laughs> right, right. So you guys well, are suggesting it's a little bit of a turnoff mm-hmm. if you knew a guy did this, Susan, and right. you too. I mean, well, well, if a guy does more like salon stuff than me, then right. I feel like I might find that I, I don't know. Is he getting polished? Is that it? Is that yeah? Does it put <laughs> more pressure on the pressure on the women to, so that they look good if their their guy is so concerned about how he uh, looks? I don't think so. I, I think right. it's, it's kind of emasculating. I think to for them to go to a, a salon and right. get like a nice little varnish. Right. Well, I mean, don't, don't some women like you know grittier guys? You know, more unkempt. Yeah, I mean, you won't find me in a salon. <laughs> I don't like gritty guys. I mean, well, some some girls do, just like more masculine. Yeah, yeah. More well, like... they think it's more masculine. But... <laughs> I think a guy a guy who knows how to trim his own toenails and fingernails, thumbs up. <laughs> uh, see, I, I'm just I've saying always... it's not a deal breaker for me. <laughs> right. Daddy, and, but now, what what's a turn off if a girl, well, it's not a turn off if she goes to a manicurist. Uh, no, no, that's quite awesome. but I think some women with like really long nails with all the stuff on it, I think that's a turn off. If it's tacky, then yes, it's a turn yeah. off, but not because What's, this is kind of a girl. weird one, but kind of a turn off for me. Uh, girls that like have the fake hair clipped into their own hair. Oh, you that's, know, that's weird. yeah. I mean, there was this one time where um, I was making out with this girl and, and you know, <laughs> no. I just okay. see where this is going. Yeah, well, no, uh, it's not going anywhere. And, um, and, and, and I want to hear the story. That's what she was I had my hand on the back of her head and I reach up and her hair comes off my hand and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, did I just rip your hair out? And no, it was just this little hair clip. So that would definitely be <laughs> don't, don't about, put fake hair in. What about girls who bite their fingernails? You ever um, notice that if they have really, you know what I mean? It's bitten down. And not, not, I mean, unless it's like, no, See, guys don't really notice these smaller details. I yeah. didn't even, I didn't even <laughs> notice that. Point. I didn't even notice that women like even looked at people's shoes until like a few years ago. It's like what? I have to con- be concerned about what shoes I'm wearing? That doesn't make. I never look at people's That's shoes. That's not a great point. Gu- guys notice like well, very so, little. So if I was to go on a date with you, mm-hmm. um, what, and I got my nails done, a really nice like French manicure, um, right. would you notice? I think what it, it might contribute holistically. I might, and, and also, also another thing, another thing, this is another thing, guy over here. <laughs> another thing I, I notice is like, especially with myself when I'm dressing well, I feel the main effect. The reason why I, I succeed more is not because I'm dressing better, but because I, I'm more confident. So the and French so manicure is not for for you, but it it's more yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. I have more confidence, and therefore I'm more attractive to you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. But you know what? I have a friend who had two kids. She was married. She went and got a breast in you know implants and and i and she said i'm doing it for myself and you know it made me like i dropped her as a friend i found myself i like i'm like what can't, can't well, go bar hopping with her anymore <laughs> well, oh, because i'll fail in comparison that is true i'm sure that wouldn't be the case. we'll come back to this i'm sure we'll get some more emails from this after your response to this one by the way give us a call if you'd like to make a comment our number is 650-723-9010 okay here's a somewhat complicated scenario my first boyfriend who i was crazy about just came out of the closet he told me that he knew he was gay when we were dating and that he was attracted to his guy friends at the time when he talks that way i feel as though he used me it happened a while back but i don't want to be his friend now any comment on this 
Uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm surprised that she, that she was surprised, actually, because <laughs> if, if he was uh, interested in other guys and, and telling her openly when they were dating... No, 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 oh. no, 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 no. Okay. He just Never came mind. out of the closet, and he, he's recently told me ah. that he knew he was gay when we were dating, and that at that time he was attracted to... Well, that changes uh, things. <laughs> yeah. yeah no. that, I mean, that, that, is, that is using her. I mean, it's being... Uh, dishonest with her. I mean, I, I can ca- understand where the guys come from. He's coming from a difficult. It's difficult for him, but you know, I mean, I don't expect the girl to be too happy about it. At, at the same time, I don't think that. You know, I, I think that some people might realize that they're gay and mm-hmm. then not really come to terms with that. They, they might right. feel some attraction, oh, but and and they they feel that attraction, but they're not able to really put a label on that. Um, so okay. I, I was I dated a gay guy um, in high school, and um, yeah, you know, I was the last girl he ever dated, mm-hmm. um, and I think he was attracted to men at the time, but he wasn't able to you know say that, and mm-hmm. so I don't think that he was using me. He just I was a phase as he was kind of articulating his sexuality. Well, and I think it depends if you if if you had a great time with this, you know, then turned He dressed guy. well, right. he danced well. It <laughs> I was mean, fabulous. It was fabulous. And, you know, for the email, I'd say if you guys had a great time, well, it's like breaking anyone breaking up with you. It doesn't Mary, really matter why. Mary, what do you think? Well, I think people can only be dishonest with you if they know what the truth is and they're hiring to hide it. If you, If the guy didn't know what the truth was himself... That, yeah. Well, he know, said he knew that yeah, he told excellent. me that he knew he was gay when we were dating. Right. So yeah. he was mm-hmm. he was kind of lying to her and um, not not I coming. This doesn't go to come down on my list of terrible things to do to people. I don't know. <laughs> you have a list. This doesn't make it. OK. Um, <laughs> my boyfriend and I have been together for two years. He always compliments me and is very good to me. My problem is that I feel funny undressing in front of him. I don't have a particularly great body. And frankly, I don't feel like being naked in front of him. What do you say? I, I think when she says that she, you, you know, must scurry around getting quickly under the covers so that she's not walking around naked. Guys, what do you think? Would this, um, what if your girlfriend was, you know, running away every time she was undressing? That'd be kind of frustrating. And it's like, I mean, does the girl logically think the guys, I mean, the guy's attracted to her. She's got no logical reason to to feel self conscious. Well, this is an irrational. Well, right. It's a it's a feeling. Yeah, yeah. If everything were rational, it'd be much easier. But um, no. I mean, that that would be a little frustrating. But I'd understand. Mm-hmm. Would you say something? Um, oh yeah. I, I'd say it's like you know you, you don't. I try to make her f- feel more at ease, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably uh, sit down with her and talk to her about that. I mean, and it, it depends. If, if you're, like, living together with her, you know, you, you could take a, a day or two and just, like, you know, walk around in, like, naked. boxers and panties or naked, like, all day or all weekend. <laughs> Non-sexual. I mean, that's naked, good fun. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so this is the, 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 the girlfriend coming. Or, this is the girl yes. writing. Yeah. And I think that she honestly feels like this is, a, this is a problem. And from my perspective, I don't, th- like, there's only so much that, you know, a, a boyfriend can be held accountable for. I think it's on her. She's reaching out for help. I think it's on her to find some, like, maybe go to some therapy and see, like, this, right. you know, some body image issues because it's really on her. And if, if he's good to her, mm-hmm. I think he's fulfilling his obligation. And it's there's only so much that right. an external force can do. Yeah, I've I've dated a girl before, and it's like, you know, what do I have to say? to like she she kept on, you know, she wouldn't believe anything that I said about her. It's like, you know, like, you're pretty. It's like, no, I'm not. It's like... 
What do you want me to do? You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I hate it's this not your fault. It's that not that is also extremely it's, frustrating. It is. It is. Yeah. I think it's on her. Right. Well, yeah. we should have a... Well, we have talked about compliments and which ones are hard to accept yeah. mm-hmm. and um, and believe. And if you really don't think that you're attractive or you're used mm-hmm. to that mantra of, oh, I'm not right. attractive, I'm not attractive, you can't accept the thing. Well, here's yeah. another. Um, uh, uh, let me see. We have a couple of ones here. Um, I'm having a problem. Um, anytime any guy I get a crush on never ends up feeling that way about me, they always have a reason why I'm not the one. What can I do to get guys to like me? One minute um, on this. Don't don't have the attitude, what I'm not going to do to get guys to like me. Because <laughs> like for any anything, like act like what do guys have to do to like me then they'll like you <laughs> oh. because because if if you have that you'll just try to please them and and any if they can like dismiss you be like oh that's that girl who always likes me whatever you know it's just natural okay i would say date your friends you know those are people that you already have a lot in common with definitely try that <laughs> laura what do you say oh i was just thinking about what danny was saying and uh reminding me of a story and <laughs> remain uh, where the source came from, I will not divulge, but basically this girl referred to herself as the prize. And would <laughs> talk to guys and be like, so, do you think you got what it takes to be with the prize? Oh, that's the right attitude. <laughs> a little bit of cockiness isn't a bad thing, I think. Uh, would, would you date her then, though? Would, would she, not would if she you're overt about it. We are running out of time. We have one quick last uh, email here from Elise. My boyfriend and I have great sex, and I have really strong feelings about him. How can I tell if it's love or lust? How long has it been going on? <laughs> doesn't say. How much does it matter? <laughs> have, you ever have fun while you still can. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever spent any time with him when you were doing anything else? <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Probably not. So we. I should... mean, is there a reason to do anything else? <laughs> well, you, that's the only way to find I, you out. Know, if it's that's been ten years, out. that's... That's pretty great. If yeah. it's been 10 dates, well, yeah. that's still good after 10. No. <laughs> if you're having great sex after, after a couple dates, I mean, that's, no, no. that's a solid We, we can't end the show saying after we advocate dates? lust over any other feeling. I don't think we ought to end the show on that. You note. don't think so? I don't think so. There's a mother no. at the table. No. There's I'm a sorry. mother. There's also lots of students who want to talk about lust. <laughs> <laughs> and great sex. Oh, uh, well, we're coming to the end. I, I want to thank our listeners for your wonderful emails, and we love hearing from you. If you have a comment, question, or concerns, send us an email at mothers at kzsu.stanford.edu. Also, let us know if you'd like to be on the show. It's time to say goodbye, and I want to thank Laura, Bill, and Danny for coming on, and the two moms. Mary, it's good to have you back again, and Susan Nesterly. For the record, the opinions you hear on What Would Your Mother Say do not represent those of KZSU or Stanford University. Thanks today to Susan Esterly, our roving reporter, Andrew Valencia, KZSU's chief engineer, Mark Lawrence, and our show engineer, Jack Wong. A special thanks to our underwriter, Wendy Schmidt. That's it for tonight. You've been listening to What Would Your Mother Say. Thanks for joining us. See you next week, same time, same station. I'm Susan Morris, and remember, call your mom. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha.